my foot got trapped in it, and then I did like a backflip off of it and broke my foot. I think we were feeding our birds one time, and they never knew what the cave was haunted. But I found it and tried to give it to her, but she said no. It's time for the apple seed. I'm Sam Payne, your host. In every episode of the show, we bring you great stories, tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, personal and family tales, and more. And we hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. That kind of storytelling can make memories that last a lifetime. And speaking of memories, we're doing a little bit of it these days on the apple seed as we're preparing to wind down season two of the podcast in preparation for a brief hiatus and then back with season three. We can't tell you how excited we are uh, to bring you some of the stuff we've got prepared for season three. In the meantime, we're remembering some of our favorite moments from season two. Uh, We've got uh, in the studio with me, Heather Bigley and Brian Tanner, our producers. Guys, thanks for joining me. Good to be here. Hello. And uh, we've been uh, inviting Heather and Brian to share some of their favorite moments from season two. And today, Heather's doing the sharing. Heather, what do you remember? I wanted to talk about Charlotte Blake Austin's Hammers of Steel, which was in episode 23, which is actually fairly recent on the uh, (laughs) timeline. May feel, except it was July. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Feels recent, except it was July. We're in the 40s now, so yeah. (laughs) I guess so. Um... (laughs) And I, this story, I think, is just one of those poignant stories about empowerment, but also about uh, loss. Yeah. And to me, it's it's fascinating how they all tie together. And it's one of those stories where we get to um, sing along, as it were, yeah. and um, participate. Hmm. Yep, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I thought this was a great one to talk about. Charlotte Blake Alston, a wonderful storyteller and musician, and this, her telling of the story of the great American folk hero, John Henry. Here's Charlotte Blake Alston on The Appleseed. Thank you. Just outside of Philadelphia. So I have to name my little borough uh, Lansdowne because they do claim me uh, <laughs> uh, there. And uh, we're, we're uh, one of the older uh, boroughs uh, on, on uh, Philadelphia's southwestern border. There's another one that has a similar name that's north of the city called Lansdale. And we often get confused with Lansdale. So we actually have T-shirts that say down, not Dale. Uh, so I'm in Lansdowne, Pennsylvania. So uh, uh, this is a story of one of America's folk heroes, And what's unique about him and why I chose to uh, speak this story as a spoken ballad is because he is uh, the only folk hero who is of African uh, descent. So this is the story of John Henry. There are lots of ballads sung about John Henry. Um, And uh, uh, if you don't know John, you're not familiar with that story. Of course, in the early days of America, the infrastructure was created with physical strength with men's actual manual labor. And that included when they made the decision to run a railroad from the West Coast to the East Coast, it was men who laid the track through all kinds of terrain, including uh, going through mountains. And so they would have men who had these long steel spikes that they would hold up against the rock. Men like John Henry had a 5, 10, 15 pound steel uh, hammer who would hit the end of that steel spike, drive it into the mountain. They would hit it until it went in deep enough, and this would be several of them, deep enough so that the powder men could put dynamite sticks into that indentation, into those holes, and blast that part of the rock, cart it away, and they'd start that process all over again until they had literally hammered their way through the rock. So, of course, a man came along who invented a steam drill, said this steam jewel can replace the men, can replace the manual labor. John Henry stepped up and said, if you're going to use a steam drill, you're going to put men out of work. I'm going to prove to you that a man is worth more than a machine, and he races the machine. So this is my spoken ballad of John Henry. <clears throat> Hammers of steel rang out. Now that's your part. <laughs> Hammers of steel rang out. Hammers of steel rang out. Uh. Hammers of steel rang out. Uh. Hammers of steel rang out. Uh. He was born in Missouri in the 1840s. Others say that Alabama was the place. Uh. 
Some say he wasn't nothing but a Louisiana man or the one North Carolinians embrace. Legend says that he was born with a hammer in his hand. That's the way the story goes. I can't imagine how his mama endured that pain, so I'll spare you the birthing woes. They say the frog stopped frogging and the cricket stopped cricking and the mighty winds quieted down. All of nature was a-watching and a-waiting and a-listening for that itty-bitty baby sound. And as soon as baby John drew his first breath, the mighty rivers roared. Baby John jumped down, started crawling around, banging his hammer on the cabin floor. Yes, he did. Hammers of steel rang out. 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 Well, Lord have mercy, his mama cried. Now, I'm not one to complain, but I want you to know that it feels like I just gave birth to a full-grown man. Well, he wasn't quite a man, but he certainly grew to be a big, tall, strapping boy. And plowing, planting, hauling, lifting was the kind of work he enjoyed. Legend says one day as an itty-bitty boy when he was sitting on his daddy's knee, he pointed his finger at a great piece of steel and said, that's still going to be the death of me. Well, he soon grew bored with farm-type work. He had an itching to travel the land. So he went to find work that would make better use of the strength that he had in his hands. And yes, he did. Hammers of steel rang out. 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 Well, he got a job working on a river boat, and that suited his fancy just fine. And soon his story was being told all up and down the river boat line. For one dark night, one stormy night, the river boat paddle wheel broke. We're taking on water, the captain cried. We got to bail to stay afloat. Well, young John Henry jumped on the deck, eased across a wooden plank. And before you could say great God from Zion, he jumped down onto the paddle wheel crank. Well, he pushed, pulled, moaned and groaned, and the paddle wheel started to turn. John Henry pushed that riverboat back into port by the crack of dawn. And yes, he did. Hammers of steel rang out. 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 Well, after spending some time on a river boat, he was yearning for a bigger test. He heard men talking about railroad tracks being laid from the east to the west. They're laying track across prairies, rivers, plains, going to blast through the mountain's core. John Henry got excited, thought to himself, this is the challenge I've been waiting for. They needed men of strength to wield 10-pound hammers to drive those steel spikes through. So the powder man could put in the dynamite, blast it, and cart away the residue. Well, they reached the mountain, and that was the place where Big John's true test began. But all he was thinking was, it feels so good to have a hammer in my hands again. And yes, he did. Hammers of steel rang out. 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 Well, the men start singing and the hammers start swinging and they swung those hammers all day. Each crew worked hard and fast as they could, but John Steele gang led the way. Nobody had ever seen such a man like Johnny did the job of ten strong men. And from the owner to the foreman to the water boy, everybody was in awe of him. But one day, one day, a man showed up, told the boss, I could save you time. This brand new steam joke could do the work of all the hammers on the steel gang line. Well, John spoke up. I don't know about that. These are good, hardworking men. They've laid track for you all across this land, and they'll be loyal until the end. No matter how hardworking they might be, there's no man who could beat a machine. And I dare anybody to challenge the thought that he could beat a drill powered by steam. See, this here man didn't know John Henry hadn't heard about the paddle boat wheel, and there was nobody better than Big John Henry at swinging those hammers of steel. So John said, I'll take the test for all these men have worked hard all across this land, because before I let my steel gang down, I'll die with a hammer in my hand. Yes, he did. Hammers of steel rang out. 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 
Well, the stage was set. The Big Ben Tunnel was the site of the big showdown. One look in John's eye and you knew he was not going to let his steel gang down. Come on, little Bill, grab them steel spikes. You and me's got work to do. Bill shook John's hand and said, there's nobody that I'd rather do this with than you. It was on John's back that the jobs of all these hardworking men would ride. So he calmed himself and prepared to hammer until the belly of the mountain sighed. Little Bill grabbed one of the handheld spikes and placed it against the rock. John Henry picked up a 10-pound maul and prepared to race the clock. The men stepped back to watch. There was so much tension in the air. You could cut that thickness with a knife and still have more than your share. Well, they got into position, side by side, the steam drill and the man. Bill heaved a sigh, tightened his grip, steadied the steel spike with his hands. The foreman called out number one. The operator's hand started to twitch. The foreman called out number two. The nervous hand went towards the switch. The foreman dropped his hands on three, and the steam drill roared to life. But the very first hit they heard was steel on steel. John Henry had made first strike. Ah! Hammers of steel rang out. 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 Hiss, hiss, pop, 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 pop. The steam drill chugged and churned. And shovel after shovel after shovel of coal, that steam drill quickly burned. And John Henry was slamming that spike so hard and fast that it got red hot. Little Bill had to drop it, picked up another. John Henry kept up the fight. Give me a 20-pound hammer, give it to me quick. He tossed the 10-pound hammer away. And the sound of steel on steel echoed all through the mountains and the canyons that day. But swinging one hammer wasn't good enough. Give me a second when the big man cried. He was swinging both hammers so fast that you could barely see it with the naked eye. They poured water on the steam drill to keep it cool as man and machine kept pace. Drilling deeper and deeper until the stone cold rocket wasn't clear who was winning the race. But John kept going, swinging both hammers till everybody could see that where big John Henry had dug five feet, the machine had only dug three. Ah! Six foot, eight foot, ten foot, John was out drilling the drilling machine. When the steam drill reached the eight foot mark, John Henry had reached 13. Pour water, pour water, shovel in more coal. We can't stop drilling now. But the machine couldn't keep up with Big John's pace. Seemed to be slowing down. Then all of a sudden, the steam drill started shaking, shuddered, and it came to a halt. The machine overheated, stopped dead cold, seemed to be falling apart. Yeah, woohoo! All the men cried. He did it. He beat that thing. The two holes he drilled totaled 14 feet. The machine couldn't manage 10. Well, John stopped swinging. And all of a sudden, a beam of light shone in his eyes. He had hammered his way through the last bit of rock and broken through to the other side. But when John stepped out into the light, drew in a slow, deep breath, his body gave out. He collapsed to the ground just the way he'd predicted his death. Well, both man and machine were silent. The hammers no longer rang, but the rhythm of the strikes could be felt in the hearts of every member of John Steele gang. Well, they carried him off the mountain and buried him in the sand. And people came from the east and the west to visit the grave of this man. And if you make your way to the Big Bend Tunnel, there's a statue on that spot. It's been vandalized, pulled off its stand, peppered with buckshot. But no buckshot will stop the stories and songs from being told throughout this land of Big John Henry, the steel driving man who died with a hammer in his hands. Hammers of steel rang out. 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 John Henry, leader of the steel driving gang. Huh!
Yeah. Rousing. Yes. That story is. And yet <laughs> ends with a death. Yeah. yeah. Right? No kidding. I mean, that's yeah. what's so interesting about this story is that it, it gears up and he wins. Yeah. Right? John Henry wins, but he doesn't win at the same time. It, that's right. Ends with a death, but is seen uh, by so many as a story of triumph. Yeah. Yeah. Hammers of Steel, a version of the story of John Henry shared with us by Charlotte Blake Alston, the wonderful Philadelphia storyteller and musician. And, of course, that was recorded live in the Appleseed studio. We're sharing with you some of our favorite Appleseed moments from the last little while. And uh, today we're sharing Heather's memories. And we're going to give not only Heather a chance to talk about that story, but also Brian Tanner as well. They're sitting at the desk with me, and we're going to get to it in just a moment. I'm Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed, an episode in which we're featuring uh, some of our favorite Appleseed moments from the last little while. That, of course, that you just heard was uh, Charlotte Blake Alston with Hammers of Steel, a version of the John Henry story. And uh, Heather, that was a story that you chose as a favorite. Yeah, this one actually reminded me, and I don't know if I've mentioned this before, it it her telling of the story and her use of song made me think of sixth grade choir class. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, we had a black choir teacher and she was very strict and I was somewhat a little bit scared of her. But she made sure we heard all kinds of great stories from the black tradition. Yeah. And I'm very thankful for that. And, you know, she taught us lift every voice and sing, which I mm. still belt in the car occasionally <laughs> when I'm when I'm feeling like I need to, you know. Last uh, time. When was the last time? Uh, it was sometime this summer there when I was go. like, okay. my house is flooding, life is in tatters, it feels slightly, and I'm just going to sing this song because it'll make me feel like God is looking out for me. So, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Boy, it's it's amazing the way singing can do that, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. There's no distress so distressing that it can't be ameliorated to some degree, right. even a small degree, by opening your mouth and singing. Lift every voice and That's sing. That's right. Yeah. I love it. You know, what I love about the John Henry story and in the way that Charlotte tells this story is uh, he's someone who just has this sense like, I was meant to do great things, you know, and in, in the beginning, he's he's he hasn't made his way to the railroad yet. And he's just like, I need bigger things. I need to be on a bigger stage because right. I came here on earth to do big things. And I look at people who have big lives and I'm just like, sometimes I'm just like, wow, how do those people do it? You know, <laughs> how exhausting is that? Yeah. But I mean, there's nothing stopping anybody from having a big life. You right. know, there's right. not nothing stopping anybody. Well, I mean, some people have, you know, systemic yes. things that work <laughs> against them, but you know, th- there's, there's no reason why within your sphere in which you are, you can't just be like, I'm going to be the person who steps up, who solves the problem, who does the thing. Right. And it well, can and be me. That's John Henry. Yeah. He's in this constrained situation. Yeah. Right. He's, mm-hmm. he, he could be probably doing anything if he were in a different society. Exactly. At the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's going to make his mark here yeah. when it comes to uh, pe- people leaving their, or when it comes to people losing their jobs. Yeah. Right. Uh, facing machinery, et cetera. So I'll tell you, Brian. You talk about big dreams, big lives, and suddenly I'm, uh, I am, I am caught by a memory of my younger brother. My younger brother when he was seven, eight years old, uh, simply was going to win the Heisman Trophy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, How'd it so, work out? So convinced <laughs> was he that he was going to win the Heisman Trophy that he wrote uh, on the very first computer that our family had. Commodore uh, 64? Uh, it was that era. Yeah, it, was the, it wasn't a Commodore 64, but it was that era. And he wrote on that computer acceptance speeches <laughs> for my parents to give. Wow. Uh, so when when uh, the press asked them how they felt about their son winning the Heisman Trophy so that wow. they wouldn't have to worry about that themselves. And, uh, and how thoughtful. Yeah. Yeah, That's great. Yeah. He remains an enormous uh, uh, football fan but uh, makes his living playing guitar. And <laughs> Probably glad he never broke his hand That's playing right. football. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, a pleasure to hear that story from Charlotte Blake Austin. I love to hear Charlotte's stories and music as well. And uh, that's not the only thing that we're going to hear today. Heather? Yeah, we're going to hear a piece we did called Einstein's Puzzle. 
Um, this is from episode 12. And this is the Appleseed Studio production gang yeah. <laughs> getting together to solve one of the hardest puzzles. No, not really. It wasn't that hard. Uh, but getting together listen, to solve a puzzle. It was hard. <laughs> I was there. It was hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, ma- listening to it made me a little nostalgic because, you know, behind the scenes here at the Appleseed, we rely on a lot of students to yep. help produce the show. And yeah. some of the ones in that recording have now moved on. Oh. I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hearing their voices yeah. is uh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're thrilled to bring you this piece, Einstein's Puzzle on the Appleseed. Perhaps your family puts together puzzles over the winter holidays. Everyone gathered around a card table, fingering the shape of a blue cardboard puzzle piece, reaching over and past your little sister Esperanza and your great uncle Maynard to snap something into place. That satisfying click resonating in your ears and along your thumb. And then your cousin Vishwa adds his piece and then your granny and there's a whole crescendo of pieces until you stand back and see a finished image of a fantastical solar system where an astronaut can leap from Mars to Jupiter in one bound, a giant flag in her hands. But that satisfaction might be long in coming. Remember when your auntie spilled all the puzzle pieces onto the cardboard table at the beginning of vacation? A thousand pieces skittering upside down, the cardboard dust making you sneeze. It was slow going, a slog of sorting and comparing and keeping the dog from licking the pieces up on his tongue. But you and your family came back to it between meals and after naps and while the TV played football or your mother's favorite Christmas movie. Maybe you wanted to quit. Maybe you felt overwhelmed by all the different colors of blue in that puzzle. And maybe you did quit because Fortnite is a lot more fun than this. But your abuelo didn't quit. No, he doesn't sleep too well. So he would wake up before dawn and then wander around the table with his reading glasses on his forehead, trying to see the picture and the puzzle at the same time. And bit by bit, the image on the box became the image on the table. And you got pulled into it again, standing there, contemplating those blues. Until you realize that's not sky in your hand, but the reflective bumper of the Mars rover. Snap. Logic puzzles are the same sort of exasperation and patience and thrill. At first, you're looking at what's essentially a chart full of blanks that you're expected to fill in, and all that negative space overwhelms you. Where do you start? How do you decide what goes where? When I was a teacher, I taught a logic class for seventh graders, and one of our favorite activities was to solve logic puzzles as a class, working through what's known as Einstein's Riddle. The legend goes that Einstein created the puzzle as a young man, but no one can really confirm that. You can easily find it on the internet. I'll read you the situation here. There are five houses in five different colors. In each house lives a person with a different nationality. These five owners drink a certain type of beverage, smoke a certain brand of cigar, and keep a certain pet. No owners of the same pet smoke the same brand of cigar or drink the same beverage. So the question is, who owns the fish? If you're paying attention, that's five different people with five different characteristics. This puzzle is solved when you correctly deduce where each person lives, what they drink and smoke, and what their pet is. So you can, of course, answer who owns the fish. The Appleseed team got out an enormous piece of paper to solve this together. There's five different colors, right? Yeah. Do we have different colored markers? Would that help? Thankfully, there are a few clues that come with the puzzle. The Brits live in the red house, the Swede keeps dogs as pets, the Dane drinks tea, the green house is on the left of the white house. You get the idea. The Norwegian lives in the first house. And we know that it is not the White House. Right. The very first logic puzzles were written by a professor of mathematics at Oxford, known as Charles Dodgson. But Dodgson also went by the pen name Lewis Carroll, whom most of us know is the author of Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, who gloried in the unconventional, the uncomfortable, and the mystifying, like we just heard. Logic is a system that's supposed to help us make sense of the world. From two premises, you can deduce a valid inference. The Norwegian lives next to the Blue House. Next to the Blue House, and we know he lives in the first house. Yes. So we know that's the Blue House, so that narrows our choices for the Green House and the White House to three. The Green House's owner drinks coffee, so it can't be this one because this person drinks milk. But valid doesn't mean true. 
In fact, logicians have a different way of recognizing a valid inference that is also true. They call that a sound inference. And perhaps that is what Lewis Carroll was getting at with his children's books. Just because something follows the rules doesn't make it sound. Am I wrong in saying that Norwegian can only drink water? Is there... What is your... Yeah, yeah I think we just true. air this unedited. <laughs> this is the episode. It's, it's this radio is, gold. This is riveting. <laughs> I used logic puzzles in my seventh grade classroom to help kids practice deduction, but it had a bigger reason too. One great big puzzle for all of us to solve helped us work together, practice teamwork, build friendship, and respect for each other. Sort of like your family huddled around the Christmas puzzle. So there we go. Nice. Green. We know the Brit is in the red house. And then the Norwegian has to be the yellow (laughs) house. America is currently engaged in a similar team-building exercise through Wordle. Wordle is a word game developed during the COVID pandemic. It's sort of a combination of Sudoku and Text Twist. You have six tries to guess a five-letter word. Every time you guess, you're told through yellow and green squares lighting up behind your letters, which of your letters exist in the actual word you want to find. There's a delighted yeep from most of us when we see all five letters light up in green. That means you've accurately guessed the word. The cool thing about Wordle is that there is only one word puzzle a day for the entire world. We're all playing the same game at approximately the same time, which means we like to share our wins. And the game comes with a share function to help you do just that on social media. I know people who post their win on Facebook every day. I personally share mine in a little text group of friends. I'm always amazed when they can work out the word in only two or three guesses. Often we share what our list of guesses were and talk about our strategies together. Sometimes I feel competitive. Sometimes I want to be the person who can guess more accurately than my friends in fewer tries. But Wordle is incredibly humbling. And I found it's just better for my ego if I recognize that though I love words, I might not be the best at logically deducing the answer. My math teacher friend Z is better at that. He usually beats me at Wordle. And... I'm okay with that. Sometimes. Here at the Appleseed, we solved Einstein's riddle. Yes! (laughs) I can't believe this. This is so huge. (laughs) (laughs) We aren't going to tell you the answer because you probably want to gather your compadres about you and give it a shot, too. Remember, it's a process that takes work and thought, but ultimately ends in delight. Happy deducing. Yeah, there we were, the oh, team so young, solving the puzzle. So young and innocent. Wait, no, that was July. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for bringing that piece to us, Heather. Yeah, I mean, I think the piece says sort of what I would say, which is it's all about working together, yeah, right? And uh-huh. um, here's a bit of data nobody asked for, uh, which I'm going to give you. So I took this TV class once. Right. And it was it was studying TV and they talked about how in the 60s and 70s, there's all these family comedies. But then in the 80s, well, it starts in the 70s, but you get more and more and more workplace Mm, mm. uh, comedies. And essentially the workplace comedy had begun to take the place of the family comedy Mm -hmm. in TV sitcoms. And gosh, I wonder why that was. And that's what we spend our time doing is talking about why that would be. But this idea that the work family is really important for most of us, yeah, right? Yeah. And I don't know if I don't I don't know how it is now that everyone has a cell phone, but you know, um twenty years ago I didn't have pictures of my work friends, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You know, just like I wouldn't have had pictures of the lady at the post office who was always super helpful with me, you right, know, and always yeah. made my life a little easier. Yeah. Um and but those are important people in our lives. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. At our last uh, writers' room meeting that we had in December with with a, a crop of students that we knew would be graduating and moving on, you know, took a big selfie with everyone, <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm I'm really gonna miss this group. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Some of the family that produces the apple seed is transitory. They come and they go, mm-hmm. and it's great to have captured them on a recording. Yep. And these days, that's easier than ever, right? Right. Because of the fact we're all we're all carrying recording devices in our pockets, or so many of us are, and you can capture some of those voices that will be important to you later on. 
At the top of the hour, of course, we heard Hammers of Steel, a version of the John Henry story told for us by Philadelphia storyteller and musician Charlotte Blake Alston. That was recorded live in the Appleseed studio. And uh, then we solved a puzzle together. It was a pleasure to do that. And there's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. We're going to spend a moment with Peter Pan at all. I'm Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. For the last few episodes, we've been sharing some of our favorite Appleseed moments from the last little while. Up next, we're going to hear, well, this is a Reader's Theater performance. Uh, Heather Bigley, tell us about it. Yeah, this is a Peter Pan, or this is Peter Pan, an adaptation from the play um, and novel, depending on which one you read, uh, by J.M. Barry. <laughs> so many things. So, yes, so we many have versions. iterated so, Peter Pan in so many idioms, right? Yes. Yeah. And it played originally in episode 30. Yeah. Well, here it is. Just a moment from Peter Pan, a reader's theater adaptation recorded live in the Appleseed studio. For a brief moment, I was a pirate. I was called Starkey, and I spoke with a brogue and sang sea shanties and occasionally ran in fear from a large crocodile who had swallowed a clock. You see, as an eighth grader, I was cast in the Northern Middle School interpretation of Peter Pan. My friends Ferris, Andreas, and Jenny were all pirates together, and we reveled in it. We were friends with the other actors in the play. My sister played Mrs. Darling. But when you're given a skulking crew as a 14-year-old, you often embrace it with glee, which we did. Even though I was familiar with the play, I was surprised years later when I read through J.M. Barry's novelization of Peter Pan. The narrator is sharp and critical about Pan and Hook and Wendy and Mr. Darling, about children and parents. What I thought of as a whimsical, funny little play for kids actually came out of an acerbic, cynical mind. Off we skip like the most heartless things in the world, which is what children are, but so attractive, and we have an entirely selfish time. And then when we have need of special attention, we nobly return for it, confident that we shall be embraced instead of smacked. Perhaps you've seen one of the many versions of Peter Pan. The original British stage play premiered in 1904, but the Disney animated film from 1953 and the American stage musical with the famous I Won't Grow Up musical number from 1954 are the most famous. When people grow up, they forget how to fly because they are no longer gay and innocent and heartless. It is only the gay and innocent and heartless who can fly. The original play was once titled Peter Pan or The Boy Who Hated Mothers. (laughs) This is perhaps the most unnatural thing about Peter, more unnatural than his unwillingness to grow up, or the fact that he still has his baby teeth, or that he is incredibly forgetful and stunningly conceited. It is humiliating to have to confess that this conceit of Peter was one of his most fascinating qualities. To put it with brutal frankness, there never was a cockier boy. And yet, even though Peter hated mothers, he knew very well that mothers were the source of bedtime stories. This is why Peter was gawking about the nursery window and playing about in Wendy's dreams in the first place. You see, I don't know any stories. None of the lost boys know any stories. How perfectly awful! Do you know why swallows build in eaves of houses? It is to listen to the stories. Oh, Wendy, your mother was telling you such a lovely story about the prince who couldn't find the lady who wore the glass slipper. That was Cinderella. And he found her. And they all lived happily ever after. (laughs) I must go tell the other boys. Don't go, Peter. I know such lots of stories. Oh, the stories I could tell the boys. Wendy, do come with me and tell the other boys. But I couldn't. What would Mummy say? I'll teach you to fly. Fly? And you'll see mermaids. Mermaids? We would respect you awfully much, Wendy. You could tuck us in at night. Oh! Wendy loved playing with dolls, and the idea of being a mother to a dozen little boys filled her with a greedy distress. (laughs) John! Michael, wake up! 
Peter Pan is going to teach us to fly. Wake up! And so, with a little instruction... Think lovely thoughts and they will lift you up into the air. And some fairy dust. Heavenly. The darling children learned to fly and soared out the nursery window to Neverland. Michael speeding ahead of Wendy in her billowing white nightgown, and John with his father's discarded top hat, with nary a thought about their parents' broken hearts. We flew for weeks and weeks, it seemed, but finally we saw it. Or it saw us and revealed itself. There it is! And we recognized it, for it was the Neverland of our own dreams, with astonishing splashes of color here and there, and coral reefs and rakish-looking craft in the offspring, and lonely lairs and gnomes who are mostly tailors, and caves through which a river runs. And princes with six elder brothers, and a hut fast going to decay, and one very small old lady with a hooked nose. There is also first day at school, religion, fathers, the round pond, needlework, murders, hang Verbs that take the dative, chocolate pudding day, getting into braces, say 99, three pence for pulling out your tooth yourself, and so on. Neverland is snug and compact, not large and sprawly with tedious distance between one adventure and another, but nicely crammed. Look, you can see the lost boys. Where? There, north side. They're looking for me. And who's that behind them? Tiger Lily's tribe. How silently they track the lost boys. Tiger Lily? Is she pretty? And behind them are the pirates. John, should you like to have an adventure? We could capture James Hook. James Hook? He was Blackbeard's bosun. He is the worst of them all. He was the only man of whom Barbecue was afraid. He wears an iron claw where I cut off his hand and fed it to a crocodile. But there's the crocodile. Can you hear him? He swallowed a clock and it goes on ticking inside him. Yes, I hear it. How does the clock stay wound? The crock is after Hook, you see. And Hook always escapes because he hears the tick and then bolts. But promise, John, if we meet Hook in open fight, you must leave him to me. I promise. For this story, the story of Peter Pan, is about the eventual duel between Pan and Hook, the boy who won't grow up versus the man who is haunted by his lost youth. For if Peter hated mothers, he didn't have a very good opinion of fathers either. And we'll get to that very shortly. But... Why is Wendy here? I see now. Peter was bringing her to us, a lady to take care of us at last, and I have killed her. As they try to land on the mystical island, the darling children are separated from Pan. Tinkerbell has charge of Wendy, and she tells the lost boys she has brought them a great bird that Peter wants them to kill. The boys, eager to please Peter, shoot their arrows at Wendy, and she falls to their feet. Toodles is the one whose arrow struck true. When ladies used to come to me in dreams, I said, Pretty mother, pretty mother. But when at last she really came, I shot her. (laughs) I have brought you a mother to tell you stories. Why do you not cheer? Peter, I will show you to her. She is dead. He thought of hopping off in a comic sort of way till he was out of sight of her and then never going near the spot anymore. They would have all been glad to follow if he had done this. But there was the arrow. He took it from her heart and faced his band. Whose arrow? Mine. Dastard hand! Peter raised the arrow to use it as a dagger. Toodles did not flinch. He bared his breast. Strike, Peter! Strike true! Twice did Peter raise the arrow, and twice did his hand fall. I I cannot strike! There is something stays my hand! It was Wendy. She had raised her hand and placed it on Peter's. Poor Toodles. (gasps) She lives! And to show their respect for the recovered lady, the lost boys and Peter built Wendy a cottage. With Toodles' shoe as a door knocker and John's hat for the chimney. And the great surprise on that mythic island was the new adventure that Peter and the Lost Boys discovered, playing house with Wendy. She told them stories and fed them imaginary tea and tucked them into their great bed. Hook or me this time? We have said little of Captain Hook at this point, and we mean no disrespect to the pirate that even the sea cook feared. 
Hook ruled his crew with that awful claw, treated them as dogs, but also was an artful raconteur in his own right, as well as exceedingly polished and handsome, sinister when polite, a man of indomitable courage. The only question that troubled him was one of form, learned long ago at boarding school. Good form. However much I may have degenerated, I know that this is all that really matters. <laughs> Peter was such a small boy that one tends to wonder at the man's hatred of him. True, he had flung Hook's arm to the crocodile, but even this hardly accounts for a vindictiveness so relentless and malignant. The truth is that there was something about Peter which goaded the pirate captain to frenzy. It was not his courage. It was not his engaging appearance. It was the suspicion that Peter had good form and that Hook did not. Is it not bad form to think about good form? <laughs> The story makes its way to a point where Peter must rescue Wendy, John, and Michael along with the Lost Boys from Hook's pirate ship. This makes Peter Pan terribly happy. Hook on me this time! On the ship, the wretched prisoners were dragged from the hold, all except Wendy, and ranged in line in front of Hook. For a time, he seemed unconscious of their presence. He lolled at their ease, humming, not unmelodiously, snatches of a rude song. Ever and anon, the light from his cigar gave a touch of color to his face. Now then, bullies, six of you walk the plank tonight, but I have room for two cabin boys. Which of you is it to be? You, boy, you look as if you had a little pluck in you. Didst never want to be a pirate, me hearty? Not John! I once thought of calling myself Red-Handed Jack. And a good name, too. <laughs> We'll call you that here, Bully, if you join. What do you think, Michael? What would you call me if I join? Blackbeard Joe. What do you think, John? Shall we still be respectful subjects of the king? Oh, you would have to swear down with the king. Then I refuse. And I refuse. <laughs> that seals your doom. Get the plank ready. Little mother, do you have nothing to say to your children before they walk the plank? I feel that I have a message to you from your real mothers, and it is this. We hope our sons will die like English gentlemen. <laughs> Tie her up! The crocodile's about to board the ship. All eyes turned to Hook, whose infamous claw now hung useless by his side. But the gigantic brain of Hook was still working, and under its guidance, he crawled on his knees along the deck as far from the sound as he could go. The pirates respectfully cleared a passage for him, and it was only when he brought up against the bulwarks that he spoke. Hide me! The pirates gathered round him in his fear and shame, all eyes averted from the thing that was coming aboard. They had no thought of fighting it. It was fate. So it was that no pirate saw Pan leap to the deck, signaling to the Lost Boys to remain quiet so that he might hide in the quartermaster's cabin. When the pirates thought the crocodile gone, they allowed their captain to pick himself up and brush himself off to find some dignity after such a shameful display of bad form. <laughs> then here's to Johnny Plank. <laughs> Yet... Now Hook despised them all, and the need to torture the Lost Boys overcame his more efficient nature. Do you want a touch of the cat before you walk the plank? <laughs> Fetch the cat, Jukes. It's in the cabin. Peter's in the cabin. Jukes strode blithely into the cabin. The boys followed him with their eyes when... <laughs> what was that? Another pirate hesitated, but then resolutely swung into the cabin. He tottered out, haggard. What's the matter with Bill Jukes? He stabbed. <laughs> the cabin's as black as a pit, but there is something terrible in there. The thing what you heard crowing. Go back and fetch me out that doodle-doo. No, no. Tell that to my claw. The pirate went, first flinging up his arms despairingly. All listened, now, and again came. Oh! 
As is the rule, this repeats itself three times. Until no pirate will enter the cabin, no pirate will obey a direct order. In desperation, Hook makes another decision. Open the cabin door and drive them boys in. Let them fight the doodle-doo for their lives. If they kill him, we're so much the better. If he kills them, we're none the worse. For the last time, his dogs admired Hook, and devotedly they did his bidding. The boys, pretending to struggle, were pushed into the cabin, and the door was closed on them. Now, listen. And then the boys rushed the deck, led by... Peter Pan the Avenger! (laughs) Had the pirates kept together, it is certain they would have won. But the onslaught came when they were all unstrung, and they ran hither and thither, striking wildly. There was little sound to be heard but the clang of weapons, an occasional screech or splash as a pirate threw themselves into the sea. All were gone when a group of savage boys surrounded Hook. Again and again they closed upon him, and again and again he hewed a clear space. He had lifted up one boy with his hook and was using him as a buckler when another sprang into the fray. Put up your swords, boys. This man is mine. So, Pan, this is your doing. (laughs) Aye, Hook. It is my doing. Proud and insolent youth, prepare to meet thy doom. Dark and sinister man of Appy. Pan, who and what art thou? I'm youth. I'm joy. This, of course, was nonsense. <laughs> but it confirmed to Hook that Pan had good form and that he did not. Seeing Peter slowly advancing upon him through the air with dagger poised, Hook sprang upon the bulwarks to cast himself into the sea. And that is where the two last met. As Hook stood on the bulwark, looking over his shoulder at Peter gliding through the air, Hook invited Pan with a gesture to use his foot. It made Peter kick instead of stab. At last, Hook had got the boon for which he craved. Bad form! And with that, Hook went content to the crocodile. The Lost Boys took over the pirate ship and flew it back to London, where Peter had the brief idea of tricking Wendy into thinking that her parents had forgotten her. But he gave it up with great disgust when he saw Mrs. Darling weeping in the nursery. She wants me to unbar the window. But I won't. Not I. She's awfully fond of Wendy. I'm fond of her too. We can't both have her, lady. Oh, all right. Come on, Tink. We don't want any silly mothers. And away he flew. Thus, Wendy and John and Michael found the window open for them after all, which, of course, was more than they deserved. The faithful-hearted love of a mother is more than most of us deserve, for like most children... We are gay and innocent and heartless. Peter Pan. Heather Bigley, you adapted that. I sure did. (laughs) Um, As you heard, a lot of the reasons I chose Peter Pan have to do with having been in Peter Pan. Yeah. And how much fun it was to be in Peter Pan when I was in middle school. And, um, you know, like, this is such an interesting story. And as I say in the piece, like, you think of it as, oh, Peter Pan is a sweet adventure for kids. But it's kind of dark. And it's kind of uh, sharp. Right? Dark and sharp. Mm-hmm. About children. Yeah. And about their relationships with their parents and how they manipulate them. <laughs> and uh, I don't think we often talk about that. Um, there's a lot of media aimed at kids that says to kids, you guys are just great 
and yeah. we love you. You're perfect. And I think kids do need that affirmation. But I do think there should be someone, you know, it takes the village, and someone in the village should say, hey, shape up. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Pan and his pals uh, prevail against the pirates, yeah. and it's not their sweetness that nope. makes them prevail. Right? No, it's all yeah. trickery and uh, swords. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I loved hearing about your experience in 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 Peter Pan. That's uh, that's that's my favorite thing that happens on the apple scene, you know. And as you sat down to adapt a moment from Peter Pan for readers' theater, suddenly there you were saying, "I've got to include this from my own life too." I love that. That's what we do around here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I think about this adaptation of Peter Pan, uh, I think about the experience of performing it, mm-hmm. which was really fun. We got a room full of audience members, and we had some actors there. Um, it should be noted that Peter Pan was played by Ben Butters. Mm-hmm. Um, Wendy was played by Justine Kitteringham. And Anthony Buck played a handful of John, <laughs> Michael, who else? Toodles, was he? A sort yeah. of Lost Bells. Boys. Yeah. 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 He was all kinds yeah. of things. But... Uh, it just is a great memory well, listen, for me. And I got to play Captain Hook. Yes. Oh, yeah. Of course. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Lest we forget. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, it, it was just fun to think back on that night, yeah. you know, uh, of being in that space. And uh, you may not have heard my voice, but it was fun because I was— You were doing was, all the Foley work? I was doing <laughs> Big Ben. Yeah. I was doing the the splashes in the water. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so, so yeah. it's, it's it's just a lot of fun yeah. to, to to on the apple seed when we when we think about stories like this. It's just yeah. like what's a, what's a new way that we can bring it to our audience that we can bring it to uh, our the podcast listeners or radio listeners and yeah. bring some life into it. And I'll tell you, you know, we have the exp- uh, we have an experience with certain stories, and Peter Pan is one of them that's characterized by saying, oh, that story, I know that story. I've known that story since I was a kid, right? And then we go back to it, we revisit it, and we find in it all kinds of of new things, you know, the darkness and the sharpness. Yep. Yeah. Well, it was a real pleasure to bring you that story. It's been fun for us to remember today. Heather, thanks so much for bringing those to us. No problem. Brian, thank you for joining us as well. Yeah, great to remember these things. And of course, uh, in just a week or so, we're going to take a quick hiatus and then we'll be back with uh, season three of The Appleseed. We're so excited to bring you some of the stuff that we've got prepared for you uh, in that season. In the meantime, uh, look at byuradio.org or uh, by downloading the BYU Radio app for others of the BYU Radio family of podcasts and those podcasts will keep you company of course until the apple seed is back for season three i'm sam Payne. thanks so much for joining us on the apple seed